What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies to steal a moment for yourself before the week ahead. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Welcome to Coronavirus Explained. Here's your host, Ryan Gorman. Right now, the entire world is dealing with the same issue. A global pandemic from Asia to Europe to here in the United States. Life is rapidly changing as communities across the country work to mitigate the spread of this infectious disease. Here at iHeartRadio, we want to make sure you have the right information. So for the next half hour, we'll talk to a few experts about a variety of subjects related to COVID-19. In a moment, we'll talk to a top medical expert, who will help explain the concept of social distancing and why it's so important. We'll also discuss what to do if a family member in your household comes down with symptoms associated with this particular coronavirus. Also, if you're someone who still works with the public, perhaps a first responder or a supermarket employee, we'll tell you some better ways to better protect yourself. I'll also check in with a government response expert who will explain why it's so crucial that we flatten the curve, a term I'm sure you've heard a lot recently. We'll also talk about where things stand with the medical equipment and supplies needed to treat coronavirus patients and help slow down the spread of the disease. And finally, we'll spend some time with a clinical psychologist to answer questions you may have about how to discuss these extraordinary circumstances we find ourselves in with children. It can be a frightening time for kids as they've had their routines turned upside down and may not understand why certain changes have to be made. All of that and more is on the way as we try to help you better protect yourself and your family and better understand how to navigate this public health crisis. Our first guest is going to help us better understand the virus itself. I'm joined now by the chairman of medicine at St. Joseph University Hospital, Dr. Bob Lahida. Dr. Lahida, explain why the concept of social distancing is so important and also why it's vital to keep surfaces and objects clean. Well, let me take the second part first because the first part is going to require a bit of an explanation. This bug lives, this bug with its nucleocapsid, which is protein around an RNA core, lives for 
two to four days on surfaces, particularly surfaces like cushions and leather and arms of chairs and on your computer keyboard and on your cell phone. So you've really got to be careful and you've got to really cleanse these various objects with wipes, with Clorox. It can be diluted Clorox with Lysol. Uh, All of that works for this virus. It's very sensitive to those agents. Now, with regard to the first part of your question, why are we quarantining? What are we telling people to stay home? Because we're, we're doing two strategies here. One is what I call mitigation, which focuses on slowing the infection but not stopping it. And that means that we're going to reduce the peak demand while protecting most people who are at risk, particularly our elder population, you know, or those people with uh, chemotherapy or um, heart disease or emphysema, chronic obstructive lung disease, and bad asthma. And then the second thing is suppression. And that's probably the more realistic approach. And what that does is reverses the epidemic growth it reduces the case numbers to such low levels that we we attempt to keep, and you've heard this on TV and on the radio, keep the curve very low. Yeah. We want, there's, there's going to be cases, but we don't want to exceed. We don't want to go up that big hump so that all of a sudden we don't have enough hospital beds, we, have a, we don't have enough MICU beds, and everybody goes nuts, which at the present time we are controlling. So I'm happy to say that suppression seems to be working, and that's the whole idea of home isolation, uh, quarantine of those living in the same house, household as suspected people, and distancing socially the elderly and others, keeping them out of supermarkets during prime time, keeping them out of malls. You know, we're talking about closing malls, etc. And I suggested that we have older people have a certain time where they can go shopping. Right. And I was told by one of my residents uh, that that already happens, that the elderly people are given from 6 to 8 in the morning in the local supermarket to buy groceries, which I had no idea they were doing, which I think is pretty neat. What if there's a situation where someone within a family household begins to feel ill? Is there a way to mitigate the spread within a home? Yes, um, that is to keep that individual. And I have such a case right now where I have a young woman who is sneezing, coughing, and has a temperature of 103, and she's home with her parents who are both older, and she is staying by herself in her room, and, of course, there's a way uh, to serve food to her and make sure everything is wiped down. And uh, if, she, if they have a mask, which, God, God I, will, I, I hope they do, if there's a mask, even if it's a cloth mask and not an N95, one of these snazzy masks that are in short supply, at least keep the sneezing and the coughing isolated and have only one person in that family, probably a, a, a healthy youngster, go in and serve that individual food and uh, and have him or her take care of their toiletry needs, etc., in a very isolated toilet, uh, someplace where no one is in contact, until such time as that patient's symptoms go away. Now, as, a, as an added-on, the question that's been raised to me is, oh, I'm home with my relatives, my mother, father, my brother, sister. Do we need to test everybody in the family? And the answer is no. Right now, you would want the patient to be tested for regular respiratory viruses like influenza or other types of coronaviruses. And, uh, and then if that patient clears up on Tylenol or whatever, not to do anything else and not to test for COVID, unless the respiratory panel is negative and the patient gets sicker. 
And, of course, for all your listeners, if anybody has problems breathing, they are to go to the hospital or to their doctor's office or to urgy care and have themselves examined because we can determine uh, by listening to your chest whether or not you've got pneumonia or whether, whether or not uh, you're going to be, uh, have a positive X-ray or a positive CAT scan. And then that's an emergency. We're joined here on iHeartRadio by the Chairman of Medicine at St. Joseph University Hospital, Dr. Bob Lahida. Are there any other measures that those who still have to deal with the public should take? And let's start with first responders and healthcare workers. Now, let's take first responders. I happen to be the medical director of two towns here in northern New Jersey, and all of my EMTs have been uh, educated on COVID-19. And here's what we do. The dispatcher at the 911 center gets a call I'm short of breath and I have a fever. So he or she gets more answers to those questions. Dispatches an ambulance. When the ambulance arrives, we have one EMT who is gowned, gloved, and wearing a mask and possibly a face shield who goes in and sees the patient and evaluates the patient, verifies the temperature, may listen to the patient's chest with their stethoscope, of course might call the paramedics to come and evaluate the patient if the patient is very sick, and then when the patient doesn't have what appears to be the signs of COVID-19, the rest of the team who, have, who are wearing masks and gloves but are not so exquisitely gowned will go in and get the patient out and take the patient to the hospital. So we're being very careful because the first responders, like the firemen and the police, the police officers, they have no choice. They have to respond, and they have to do so judiciously. So what I'm doing is educating and I'm advising and everybody in the state Office of Emergency Management, both in New York and in New Jersey, knows this, that our first responders have to respond carefully because all we need is one positive COVID infection. It knocks out the entire ambulance squad, right. and then you don't have an ambulance. Everybody's quarantined, so we have to be careful. What about those working in restaurants, providing food through delivery or takeout, or supermarket and pharmacy employees? Well, there you have a very interesting uh, thing because, you know, 80% of the people who get this infection are asymptomatic. That means they have no symptoms whatsoever, but they can still be infective. So what I suggest for workers in restaurants, in takeout places, uh, wherever they're in, in, uh, headed with the public, wherever they're face-to-face, they should make sure they wash their hands and avoid anybody who's sneezing or coughing, a dry cough, remember, sneezing, a dry cough, and a fever are really the signs of active infection. Now, that could just be influenza, it could be a regular cold, or it could be seasonal allergies, but it's never too much to be too careful. So hand washing, I I wash my hands 25 times a day. Hand washing is very critical and not touching your face. If you're one of these servers or waitresses or waiters, be careful there uh, and you'll be fine. We're talking to the chairman of medicine at St. Joseph University Hospital, Dr. Bob Lahida, here on iHeartRadio. Finally, the impact of the virus on young adults. I want to touch on this. We know those who are most at risk for the most severe symptoms are older adults and individuals with serious underlying medical issues. But we've also seen some in that millennial age group get hit hard by this disease. Just because you're a certain age doesn't mean you should just assume you'll be asymptomatic, right? That's correct. That's correct. We have 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds who are on respirators with uh, pulmonary failure because of this virus. So you're not necessarily immune, and I, I use that, that's a pun, 
your immune system, everybody's immune system is quite different. And I was reading a report from China today where over a thousand children were tested below the age of 15, and a hundred of them were critically ill. So children are not immune to this at all. But remember, that's about that's about 10% of those who were ill who wind up being very, very ill. And so nobody is totally immune uh, to this condition. People are out there who have glitches in their immune function, not just those on chemotherapy and those with chronic illnesses. We don't know, you'll never know what your, what your true immunity is until you get infected and see what this virus does to you. So that's just to be very, very careful. But most of the big problems come with the elderly, people above the age of 70. Chairman of Medicine at St. Joseph University Hospital, Dr. Bob Lahida. Dr. Lahida, thank you for taking the time to help us better understand the medical issues related to COVID-19. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my appreciation to give out good information, and I hope we speak again. Next, let's turn to an expert who can shed some light on the local, state, and federal response to the coronavirus outbreak and why flattening the curve is so vital for our healthcare system. Joining me now is a former counterterrorism and community outreach official and former chief spokesman for the New York City Office of Emergency Management, Jared Bernstein. Jared, thank you for joining us here on iHeartRadio. Things are moving fast these days and new challenges related to the coronavirus outbreak continue to emerge People are hearing a lot about the need to flatten the curve, and I want to make sure they fully understand what that means and why it's so important. Can you explain what could happen if we don't get ahead of the spread? Sure. Well, you know, we can have an unprecedented uh, outbreak here where we have, you know, larger and larger percentages of the population, particularly people with underlying medical conditions and older people get sick. Uh, get tremendously sick, require the use of ventilators, and quickly overwhelm our inpatient hospital capacities and certainly overwhelm our number of ventilators that we have on hand. There is a stockpile of ventilators that the federal government maintains for scenarios like this that is quietly being deployed. Uh, but really, that even that stockpile could be overwhelmed if people don't uh, exercise the universal precautions here use some social distancing and really listen to authorities when they say stay at home unless you are a first responder, healthcare worker, or other co-employee. And if things get out of control, in addition to an issue with ventilators, you could also have a shortage of hospital beds, right? Yeah, I mean, some, some of the scenarios are, are truly scary. I think you, that's why you saw uh, the president authorize the deployment of a Navy hospital ship to New York, which brings another thousand beds of hospital capacity. You know, in the last 10 years, more and more things that you used to need to go to the hospital for and stay over for in an outpatient setting. And so because of that, hospitals have actually gotten smaller and smaller in terms of their number of inpatient beds. And unfortunately, when you have a pandemic situation like this, that kind of downsizing, which is good uh, overall, is not good in a pandemic situation. We're talking to former counterterrorism and community outreach official and former chief spokesman for the New York City Office of Emergency Management, Jared Bernstein. One issue in particular that's gaining more and more attention are shortages of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers and supplies needed to conduct the tests. We're seeing more and more tests being allocated across the country, but you need supplies to actually conduct the tests. Talk a little bit about that and the measures government officials can take to try to meet the demand you know government uh government organizations are really they are having to be very judicious about how they apply 
how they um, deploy resources, everything from ventilators to masks, gowns, rubber gloves, N95 masks. And that's going to be how we get through this in the long, long haul. Fortunately, our supply system will catch up probably in the next, you know, 30 days. We'll have more and more production capacity coming online. Uh, the manufacturers of the N95 masks only make so many in a year because that's what the demand is, but they've certainly ramped up production. And that's something that we're all going to have to just be very judicious at every level of government, making sure that only the responders that need them get them, but that every responder who does need them gets them. And while we're on the topic of supplies, despite the fact that a lot of times when you go to the grocery store these days, they're out of a whole bunch of different items, there really hasn't been a disruption in terms of the amount of supplies that we have for these stores or the ability to get those kinds of supplies, whether it's toilet paper, paper towels, those kinds of products to supermarkets, right? No, what you're really seeing is a little bit of panic buying. Um, where there are short-term, short-term shortages, um, but they usually last less than a week. Um, and, you know, it just takes a while for uh, supermarkets to sort of restock because they're, again, not used to selling, uh, you know, 500% as much toilet paper as they normally sell. And so their supply chain is sort of not always set up for that. But you will see in the next few days that uh, that, that supply chain will sort of start to catch up and, you know, as long as people can get to the grocery stores, there will be grocery, you know, the, the grocery, we've not seen any problems with supply chain like that so far. There was an interesting situation that took place recently at Chicago Midway Airport. It involved a couple of individuals who worked in the air traffic control tower testing positive for COVID-19 and contingency plans had to be put in place. Talk a little bit about some essential professions doing that planning and how important it is to have a contingency plan to go to. Yeah, that's a really great question. A really great point. You know, every one of these critical uh, pieces of infrastructure, they are going through what's called a continuity of operations plan. That's something that they do typically on an ongoing basis, but for sure, uh, they've, they've placed renewed emphasis on it in the last few weeks. Um, that in many cases uh, involves dividing up your teams into separate teams where people don't overlap. So that way, if you have somebody get sick on one or more of the teams, you can still stretch out your existing team into um, make sure you fill all of the, uh, the spots that you need to. And that's going on from everything from air traffic control to firefighters, EMTs, police officers, uh, util- public utilities, any kind of critical infrastructure, uh, everybody's going through this continuity of operations planning to space out their critical folks so that if somebody gets sick, you don't, uh, you don't, you know, have somebody, you don't lose the whole operation. We're talking to former counterterrorism and community outreach official and former chief spokesman for the New York City Office of Emergency Management, Jared Bernstein. As somebody who used to deal with counterterrorism, talk a little bit about our government's ability to handle this pandemic while also working to keep America safe? Yeah, I mean, it's a significant challenge. I think that, you know, having those uh, sort of twofold challenges of a pandemic and, and people who are out to disrupt our way of life uh, in, whatever, in whatever way, you know, it's something that's been planned for uh, for lots and lots of years, ever since September 11th. How do we face multiple threats at once? Uh, be they, you know, maybe it's a hurricane, and then we want to make sure, you know, after a hurricane, we're prepared to deal with attacks on our critical infrastructure. Uh, so, you know, 
I think when you when you uh, you know wonder what our public employees are being paid for, and the next time collective bargaining agreements come up, and we wonder why we're paying people what we're paying, uh, you know, it should be no, it's not lost that that the police officers, police department doesn't get to take a day off. You know, Customs and Border Protection doesn't get to take a day off. Uh, the FBI doesn't get to take a day off. And so they need to figure out ways to work through that because there are still people who are out to hurt us and disrupt, disrupt our way of life. And so that's a very real concern. And we have to, we're, you know, we're all going to have to pitch in here. Uh, the flip side of that is that because there are lots and lots of, pe- you know, far fewer people out on our streets and out in general circulation, uh, those who are, we're probably going to get a little bit more scrutiny on them. So if you're a bad guy out trying to plan some bad things uh, and you're out there when everybody is being told to stay home, you're probably going to arouse some, some suspicion uh, and, and stick out uh, in, in terms of, you know, attracting the attention of law enforcement. So it does cut both ways, but certainly it's a challenge uh, that we have to overcome as a nation. Final question for you. Lockdowns have started to go into effect in some parts of the country, most notably San Francisco. What kind of general powers do local government states and, of course, the federal government have during a pandemic? You know, uh, most states uh, and mayors, uh, you know, cities have a curfew authority. Um, It really depends upon the individual city code and how that city code interacts with state law. Um, You saw in New York, there's a a little bit uh, of a difference of opinion at the moment between Mayor de Blasio and, and Governor Cuomo about who has what power to do what. Generally speaking, when you bring out the National Guard, only the governor or the president of the United States can can bring out the National Guard for police-type actions, um, and the mayors typically can't do that. So I think that you know that's it varies from state to state, and and you know it's very difficult to do. The larger the scale, uh, the harder it is. In San Francisco, they've done something where they they are allowing people to go to the grocery store. Uh, to go outside and exercise, uh, but, but they are basically cur- curtailing pretty much everything else. Um, and I know that, you know, that that is uh, something lots of other cities in America are looking at right now. Former counterterrorism and community outreach official and former chief spokesman for the New York City Office of Emergency Management, Jared Bernstein. Jared, thank you again for the time and insight. We appreciate it. Thank you. Finally, to offer advice on how to explain to children this major disruption of everyday life, we're joined by Dr. Jamie Howard, clinical psychologist at the Child Mind Institute's Anxiety Disorder Center and the director of the Center's Trauma and Resilience Service, who's been a leading voice on talking to kids about the coronavirus. Dr. Howard, there are so many things occupying the minds of parents these days as everyone's life has been completely flipped upside down. One issue that could easily get overlooked is how children are processing so many changes. What's your most important piece of advice for parents during this coronavirus pandemic? My most important piece of advice would be that parents should definitely talk to their kids, even if you think they already know everything that's going on, even if you think they they don't have any questions. You definitely want to have an open line of communication. And when you do talk to them, you want to model sort of calm emotions. Um, it's okay to say, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling worried about grandma or grandpa, or I'm feeling frustrated, but you don't want to do too much processing of your own emotions and you don't want to appear too distressed in front of your kids. What do parents say to their children about a break in visits to grandma and grandpa, older relatives that they just can't see right now that perhaps they're used to seeing on a regular basis? 
Yeah, so it's really tricky for younger kids. I would say, you know, kids who are 10 and up probably would understand, right? They really get sort of the catchiness of certain illnesses. For younger kids, though, they do talk a lot about um, good hygiene in preschools, washing your hands a lot because of germs. So you can sort of build on that kind of conversation. And you can say, Grandma and Grandpa really want to see you, or we really want to see them. We're not mad at them, but we just can't touch them right now because we need to give scientists and doctors a chance to learn quickly about this illness, and they will learn all about it. And so in the meantime, we're going to talk over FaceTime or Skype and maintain a connection, and you can write letters and do all sorts of other kind of special things without actually seeing them in person. We're talking to Dr. Jamie Howard here on iHeartRadio, clinical psychologist at the Child Mind Institute's Anxiety Disorder Center and the director of the Center's Trauma and Resilience Service, who's been a leading voice on talking to kids about the coronavirus. With school out, is it best for parents to continue to stick to some kind of a routine, or does that really not matter? Right. So as much as possible, it's helpful to keep kids on a routine where you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the same time. If your school has sent out remote learning instructions, you try to follow those, that kind of thing. And then a lot of times parents are working from home right now. I know I am, and I'm really hoping my own kids don't walk in while I'm talking right now. So we, we kind of have to devise a schedule for, for grownups as well to, to watch over the kids. Um, And it's going to take a little time. This is still pretty new for everyone. And we're all sort of dealing with accepting this still. And I think within a week or so, you want to have a routine in place, but take the next few days to think through what's going to work best for your family. And then you'll do the best you can. It's not necessarily something we're prepared for. So the best you can is the best you can do. What should parents tell their kids about seeing their friends? Children are used to interacting with friends every day in school, and now that's not possible. So again, you can um, you can validate the disappointment. Like I really miss my friends too. Um, it's, it totally makes sense that you miss your friends, and they they want to see you just like you want to see them. Um, so let's think of some other things we can do so that we stay connected to them, and that can be arranging for video calls with friends. Similar to parents, it can be, um, or similar similar to grandparents and aunts and extended family, you can make projects and send cards. So it's very important that we think of this as physical distancing more than social distancing and that we maintain these important connections. We're a social species and we need connection. So we want to maintain that in these creative ways right now. What would you suggest parents tell children if they happen to come across some alarming information online, like, say, a study that says a million people could die from this disease or something along those lines? Yeah, so that's why you want to keep an open line of communication and keep checking in with your child and also tell them, please come to me if you if you read anything or hear anything that's really scary, and I'll talk to you about it and I'll let you know if it's true or not. And so then what you would do is you would say, I don't know that that's true. Let's look at that news source. Let's look for more information. And then you can sort of get the facts with them. We don't want them to be sitting with sensational misinformation for any period of time. So that's why you'll want to really be monitoring them and let them know that it's not a burden to to bring it up. It's always most important for kids to get news from trusted adults rather than from news sources like newspapers and TV shows and whatnot, because um, they do tend to present things in a more dramatic way. 
We're talking to Dr. Jamie Howard, clinical psychologist at the Child Mind Institute's Anxiety Disorder Center and the director of the Center's Trauma and Resilience Service. Let's talk about social media usage during these unusual times. Do you try to limit it more so than maybe parents already do? Well, so on one hand, it's the only way kids can connect right now is virtually. So you want to give them some latitude to connect, which is different than everything we've always been saying to them. We've always been trying to sort of limit it. But right now we want to encourage them to use some kind of virtual communication. On the other hand, you want to make sure that they're not getting misinformation or dramatized sort of news. Um, so you, you got to strike a balance. I would probably recommend that you talk to older kids who are on social media and say, you know, I think this is important now so you can stay in touch with your friends. But I want you to know that not all the news that might pop up is going to be accurate. And so I want you to come talk to me if you see anything that's alarming. And I also kind of want to sit down with you for a minute while you look through your Instagram feed just to see, you know, if, if you're going to be inundated with stuff about the coronavirus because our brains need a break from that. Now, teenagers, older teenagers will definitely not want their parent to sit down and look at it with them. <laughs> and that's right. fine. Um, but you can just say to them, you know, simply, it's not good for you to be inundated with this. Our, our, our brains need a break. So, so please, let's, I'm going to check in with you. I'm just going to say after, you know, 20 minutes, hey, do you, do you need a break right now? Because we can get sucked in and then forget to sort of come out of it. Finally, what can parents do to make sure teens and young adults are taking this seriously? Yes, yeah, so you, you should be in daily contact with your kids right now just because they need socialization. They can't be isolated um, and, and they'll need to hear from their parents. And um, I would say like a lot of young adults seem to be taking it seriously if they're, if they're in the workforce because a lot of them have been forced to go home. Teenagers tend to have a bit of an invincibility about them that's developmentally normal. Um, and so that is something we want to keep an eye on right now is teenagers who are like, I won't get it. I'll be fine. And that might be true, but this is more about social responsibility. Um, so we want to make sure they understand that and, and take it very seriously. Dr. Jamie Howard, clinical psychologist at the Child Mind Institute's Anxiety Disorder Center and the director of the center's Trauma and Resilience Service, uh, a leading voice on talking to kids about the coronavirus. Dr. Howard, thank you so much for your time and expertise. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And of course, a big thanks to all of our guests, including Chairman of Medicine at St. Joseph University, Dr. Bob Lahida former counterterrorism and community outreach official and former chief spokesman for the New York City Office of Emergency Management, Jared Bernstein, and Dr. Jamie Howard, clinical psychologist at the Child Mind Institute's Anxiety Disorder Center. And I'd like to thank all of you for trusting us to provide you with the right information during these unprecedented times. Hopefully our guests were able to answer some questions you might have about this public health crisis and provide you with strategies to deal with any challenge associated with this coronavirus that may come your way. Also, you can find even more resources on our iHeartRadio app, from daily updates on the outbreak to a breakdown of coronavirus facts versus coronavirus fiction. We appreciate you listening to Coronavirus Explained. I'm Ryan Gorman on iHeartRadio. 
Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. Welcome to Amen University, founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert, Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.